Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So we uh, we got we jumped back back into the book of Acts last week, and we're kind of in a um, overarching narrative uh, of <clears throat> Paul getting back to Jerusalem and all the things that entail in his basically imprisonment. And um, I think one of the questions that that hit me was, why would you go somewhere that you know there's trouble waiting? Why would you do that? Why would you make a decision like that? Uh, in, in November of 2018, 26-year-old uh, John Allen Chow, after about nine years of preparing, arrived on the beach of North Sentinel Island, which is kind of south of Indonesia, uh, and lost his life. Um, he... Uh, went on a missions trip with his church to Mexico when he was 17 years old. And uh, that's where God kind of really got a hold of his heart and gave him a vision. And uh, he learned about these people, the, the North Sentinelese people in the North Sentinelese Island, Sentinel Island. And um, he just had a burden because these were people who have never been engaged for the gospel, never reached, never engaged. In fact, they were, they're kind of known as the last people group that's known of uh, who have zero interaction with the outside world, completely closed culture. Um, and uh, so in November of 2018, he uh, finally got there after years of preparation and care and um, all of that stuff. Um, went to the, went on, went to the beach the, the one day and... Uh, some arrows came at him, and he ended up swimming back to the fishing boat that, that he was brought to the island by. And then the next morning, he went again to the beach, and um, that was the last that he was seen. And uh, he lost his life there on the beach in the North Sentinel Island. And since that day, there's been a flurry of opinions and articles and social commentary about this young man. He's been described as a fool, a racist, a Christian supremacist, a martyr, or just a man like Paul who took the commission of Jesus seriously and obeyed the specific assignment given to him by the Holy Spirit, which obviously I'm kind of playing my hand of what I think about him, um, but um, a lot of different thoughts about who he was and what he did and whether or not it was foolish or wise. Um, if you want, there's actually a, a documentary about it on, on the National Geographic channel right now that's... Uh, Definitely, it's a pretty good documentary. It definitely has uh, some um, bias to it for sure. Um, if you want to learn more about, about John, you can go just, just Google search John Cho, uh, Voice of the Martyrs, and you can um, really get a great understanding about what he did and how he prepared um, to go uh, spread the gospel. But John knew going into this that there was a high likelihood uh, of, of death waiting for him when he got to the island. And so the question is, why would you do that? Why would you go? Why did he go? Um, 
as we've kind of caught up with Paul in Acts, Paul was warned by Agabus, not just friends, not just people who were like, hey, the climate in Jerusalem is kind of crazy. That it might be dangerous there. Uh, there's some, you know, things, geopolitical things going on. No, he was warned by friends, but also uh, a prophet of God that God sent to him and said, again, he did this show and tell thing and he took Paul's belt and he put it around his, his wrist and said, whoever this belt belongs to, uh, that person is going to be in chains. Chains are waiting for him in Rome. And, and, uh, and Paul went, knowing that that's where his freedom would end and he would be definitively in chains from then on out, uh, maybe even die for his insistence on going to Jerusalem. And so why did he go? Why, why do... And this isn't a general question, why do people do things? This is, why do people do things that they believe that furthers the mission of Jesus. The thing that hit me this week, the thing that, um, that I really wrestled with was this, is that um, obedience to Jesus cannot be attached to an outcome. Obedience to Jesus cannot be attached to an outcome. Um, it can't be attached to an idea of success. It can't be attached to a, a fear of danger. Obedience to Jesus is not about doing something exciting or adventurous or something that like I really have a passion for doing. Obedience to Jesus isn't about doing something that I don't want to do. <laughs> or doing something that's hard for me. Obedience is the act of worship and glorifying God and responding to the unbelievable love and sacrifice Jesus the Savior King has given to us. It's interesting, we, we tend to, um, I, I tend to be on a sliding scale of obedience in general um, that, that kind of takes into consideration the consequence you know, like every kid growing up lives in that space, right? Because their parents say maybe them to do something, they tell them to do something and you're gonna be like, well, what's the consequence? Like, what if I don't do it because I don't wanna do it and is it really that earth shattering? Like Sherry would um, challenge me um, when, when our kids were, were little uh, because I would say, tell them to do something and if they would ask why, I would, or if, if they... Any pushback, I would just say, or you're going to be in big trouble. And Sherry would be like, so can you define for me big trouble? Because I'm just a little unclear on what big trouble might be. And in my defense, I was like, look, big trouble is so much that there's, words cannot define it, and you don't even want to know. So if, you, if I defined it for you, you'd be hurting right now. So, um, but anyway, so, you know, like, like there's that thing, but we kind of gauge consequence of, of our obedience. And so sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And and that's not how it works with Jesus because no person deserves your obedience. I mean, we can argue that it would be appropriate to obey your parents. Um, it would be appropriate to obey, do, obey people who have authority. But Jesus alone, God alone deserves our obedience and our obedience isn't just a task, but it is an act of worship in glorifying God. And so I would, I would say that 
John Allen Chow, the Apostle Paul, and countless others, you can explain why they do things that may, may look foolish because they are in obedience, worshiping and glorifying God because he deserves that because of who he is and because of how he loves and leads us. And so we're gonna jump back into the narrative, this kind of overarching story. So where we left off last week, we left off at the point where Paul obeyed and, and did what the church leaders said in Jerusalem to help dispel the, the false rumors that were going around that he was basically destroying the history and identity of the Jews. And, and so they asked him to go through this purification ceremony in the temple at expense, great expense to himself. And that way people could see him doing this and say, you're not trying to destroy the faith of our fathers, but, but you're, actually, um, you're actually in, in, in tune with us. So he goes these four other men who are coming out of a, probably a Nazarite vow and, and he pays for them and he pays for himself and so he's in the temple. And so we catch up in verse 27 of chapter 21. It says, when the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And so Paul follows through with this purification ceremony in the temple and demonstrates that he's not against the Mosaic customs, and it says there's Jews from Asia who stirred up the crowd. And, and I think it's really important that we don't jump to judging motivation there. Here's what's, here's what's interesting about that. So um, Paul was in Jerusalem during the, the Passover festival, the Passover feast, the Passover holiday. So there were Jews from all over the kind of the, the diaspora, the the. the the, the Jews who were separated and, and kind of sent all over, they were coming back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so Jerusalem was swelling with people on this very, very significant holy day, both Jews who were Orthodox and Jews who were believers in Jesus would have been there because uh, the Passover is really significant in their history. So whether you believed in Jesus or not as a Jew at that time, you would still come. I mean, you'd still make your way to Jerusalem for the, the Passover holiday. And so there was all kinds of people from all over. And so it says that there was these Jews from Asia who stirred up the crowd. And this is a massive crowd. Uh, again, there's just like there's not a lot of space there in Jerusalem because of the, the, the numbers of people there for the holiday. And so they stir up the crowd by saying that here's the guy who's coming out of the temple who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law. So in Asia, these Jews from Asia have heard the rumors about what Paul is supposedly doing. And so they repeat what he's doing. And then they, and, and it's interesting because that very thing is the exact thing that the Jerusalem leaders and Paul were trying to dispel is that these things aren't true by, by showing you that I'm, I'm stepping into the, the Jewish customs of the Mosaic law. And, and so exactly what they were trying to do, which is interesting because sometimes no matter how hard we try and, and how 
appropriately we try to dispel or correct rumors, it sometimes backfires. <laughs> and those things kind of have a life of their own and they keep going. And so then, not only that, but, but these, these Jews from Asia say that he even brought Greeks into the temple because they had seen Paul with Trophimus earlier who was a Gentile and they assumed, whether with pure or not pure motives, that, that Paul brought him into the temple. And here's, here's why we, we think about, so there's this escalation of emotion and anger in this passage and we think, well, why is it so extreme? Here's the thing, if it's true that, that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple proper, then the temple would have to be shut down and need to go through a purification and a rededication ceremony because Gentiles were not allowed to be in the temple proper. They could be in a place called the uh, court of the Gentiles, but they were not allowed to be in the, in the temple proper. And so these Jews see Paul, and so they thought, surely Paul, this renegade, this rebel, would do something like this. Like that's something Paul would probably do. He would bring a Gentile into the temple. And so they make these assumptions and they, they have these rumors. And so, so again, and it was so serious, and this is probably helps us to understand why this reaction was so extreme, is that you have the court of the Gentiles, which Gentiles were allowed, but then you have this short wall, kind of half wall that went around the entire temple proper and that was the wall that was the dividing line between the Jews and the Gentiles, and only Jewish people could go in past that wall. And on that wall, from the court of the Gentiles, there was an inscription in actually three languages, in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, that said, it was this warning that said, no Gentile goes beyond this point, and if they do, they only have themselves to blame for their death that followed. So that was written in three languages on this wall that was the dividing line between the temple proper and the court of the Gentiles. So everyone knows that if, as a Gentile goes into the temple proper, that, that it's kind of, it's a death penalty. I mean, it's probably slightly more serious warning than like beware of dog and slightly less severe of warning than like trespassers will be shot on sight. So like this is, at least they'll take you out of the temple and kill you, but you know, not on sight. So, so like they're warned. They, they, they know what's going on. If you bring, if you, if you walk in as a Gentile or if you bring Gentiles into the, into the temple. And, and it's also interesting because during this time, there was an increase in, uh, in, in moments and kind of revolts and things with the Jews, the, the, the Jews were getting really tired of being under Roman occupation. And so there was a number of kind of Jewish messianic figures who had led rebellions and revolt. And, and here at this time, uh, when Paul is in Jerusalem, there's a lot of cultural and historical unrest. There's this growing Jewish identity or nationalism that peaked about 10 years later with, with the Jews revolting against Rome and then Rome came in and destroyed and leveled the temple. So this is 10 years out from that with a lot of kind of feelings are getting more and more escalated in that. And so, so we have this thing that happens in the temple. Someone says that here's Paul who's against our, our, our very identity and he's brought a Gentile into the temple. And so it says in verse 30, it says, then all the city was stirred up. And the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. 
And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So it says word spread quickly. And, and again, you've got to realize that there's both believing Jews and unbelieving Jews in this group of people. And it says, and again, it's really easy to get stirred up by things, even things that are important and even things that are right. But as we even see back then and even today, it is easy for even people who follow Jesus to get stirred up about maybe something that's right, but they get stirred up to the point and end up in this kind of mob mentality where they actually, the things that they do out of their rightness actually don't reflect Jesus and show Jesus and act like Jesus in those contexts. And so the, the people were caught up in this and they grabbed Paul and they took him out of the temple and it says that they shut the temple doors and it says that they began to beat him. So you've got all, you've got this mob that's going crazy. They grab Paul, drag him out of the temple. They shut the doors so that nobody else can go in. Nothing else bad can happen. And then they start beating on Paul. So then in verse 32, it says, he, speaking of the, uh, the tribune of the cohort, it says, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed crying out away with him. The makeup of that area in Jerusalem with the Jewish temple uh, at the end of the Jewish temple by the court of the Gentiles, there was four towers that was the garrison, the barracks of the Roman soldiers. And so they were in these four towers, and that's why it says they ran down because uh, all the soldiers would have been, or a lot of the soldiers would have been in those barracks, in those towers attached at the end of the Jewish temple by the court of the Gentiles. In fact, it had uh, direct access from those towers into the court of the Gentiles at the temple. And so being a holiday week, Rome would have reinforced their numbers in Jerusalem because of the tempers and things flaring up. And so uh, there'd be more soldiers than normal inhabiting those barracks and throughout the city. And so it would be very easy for a watchman to see what was happening in the temple and for soldiers to have immediately have a presence and access to what was going on. Uh, Luke writes, he says that the uh, tribune, it says he grabbed soldiers and centurions, centurions being plural. A centurion was one who commanded, I mean, the word, it's they command a hundred soldiers or troops. Typically, it was a roughly 80 soldiers. So centurions, at least he grabbed two centurions. We don't know how many, but that's plural. So there's at least 160 to 200 soldiers responding to what's happening in the, by the temple in Jerusalem at this point. 
So immediately there's, there's like 200 soldiers who show up, more coming from different places because it says the whole city was gripped. And so there's, there's like Rome is clamping down on what's happening with a big show of force. He couldn't make sense because there was a lot of confusion. He was saying, what has this man done? People are yelling all kinds of things, probably can't understand anything. And so it says that he arrested Paul and put him in chains. Then it says that the soldiers actually carried Paul away because of the violence and the anger in the crowd. Like, you've got all of these military personnel responding, and it's not necessarily stopping the crowd. They're not dispersing. They're still there because of what has happened. And so so the Roman soldiers actually carry Paul and I, and I kind of wonder, not only because of the, the, the violence in the crowd, but I kind of wonder if they carried Paul partly because, I wonder how well Paul could walk. I mean, he's been in the midst of this, this, this seething crowd, and he's been beaten. I wonder how well he can navigate, because it's not a pretty picture. Like, we have to recognize this is, this is happening, this is real, and uh, imagine what was going on there. So they pick him up, and they carry him. And what's interesting, again, it says right there, we see the prophecy that Agabus gave Paul come to pass. He puts two chains on Paul and carries him away. The moment that Paul loses his freedom and now is going to be in chains, arguably for the rest of his ministry. And so the question goes back to why did he go to Jerusalem? (laughs) Everyone told him, don't go. Prophet of God said, chains are waiting for you. Probably worse. I mean, chains and beatings and all of those things, that's what's happening. Again, it comes back to this thing of Paul was living in obedience because of who Jesus is. That further back in Paul's life, He's on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus and he is zealous for God's name and God's honor and he's going to Damascus to arrest people who are preaching Jesus over God and he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and all of those things happen and God says, you, Jesus says, you are going to be my mouthpiece, mouthpiece to the Gentiles and you will, bring, you will bring my message of salvation to the Gentiles. So Paul obeyed and he went wherever, whenever God wanted him to go because that is what he wanted to do in his life. He, I mean, he didn't necessarily set out wanting to do that because he even says, that's not what I was about, but he was gonna obey God. There's a few things that I think stick out in this passage um, that, that, that I think we need to consider. And one is, is this the difficult demand of the gospel the difficult demand of the gospel. That Jesus, Savior King, calls us to obedience. He loves us first. He pursues us first. He saves us first. He gives us a new life first, and then he calls us to obey. And that's a difficult call of the gospel. But but what's also hard is that the way we flesh that out, we do that as not individuals on our own, but we have 
the, the unity, the, the body of Christ with us to help us obey and carry out what God has called us to do. You know, it's interesting, even though the Christians there in Jerusalem confessed that they were one body, the Jewish Christians still tended to worship in the temple. And the Gentile Christians could not enter the temple. And so it's kind of interesting to me that, that they were still kind of, because it was meaningful to them. It was their identity. It was, it was so much about who they were. And so they, in some ways, I'm sure that times together, they, they worshiped together. But in Jerusalem, they were kind of a split Christian community. Those who could enter the temple and those who couldn't enter the temple. So the church, even in Jerusalem, had some degree of division between them. Maybe not, maybe not technically, theologically, or doctrinally, but definitely physically, there was some division with, with, within them. There's a, a bug that just flew by me and got my attention. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, Mark can see it. Yeah, thank you. Um, Matthew 27, 51, when, when Jesus breathes his last breath on the cross, uh, Matthew writes, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. That God was demonstrating that there is no longer a dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles, that, that there is this one people. Later, Paul writes in Colossians 3, he says, here there is no Greek nor, and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's what, that's what Jesus did, and he broke that apart. And so there's no reason or excuse for the Jewish believers to be worshiping in a different building that the Gentile believers couldn't enter into. You see, the enemy's strategy is to divide or split Jesus' followers into groups against each other, even in a single church. In the house of God, the family of God, we come surrendered and humbled and laying down our agenda to worship the only one who deserves worship. So God and his kingdom takes priority and cast into dark shadow our desires, our agendas, and our ideologies. They have to pale in comparison to, to God and his kingdom. Second thing that, that kind of is presented here in this part of Paul's experience is, is the idea of being zealous. And I think there's two pieces to this. There's zeal without wisdom and zeal with wisdom. And we see the crowd and those Jews from Asia that it talks about how, how they heard something. It wasn't true, but they didn't know if it wasn't, that, that it wasn't true, but they kind of ran with it. And they were zealous for, for God's name, their history, their identity, and, and they defended that. They were zealous without wisdom or knowledge. And there's something to be said about being zealous for the things of God, but we have a tendency to let our 
conclusions and our methods outpace our knowledge and our wisdom and our verification. Like how, like you don't have to look far at all in our culture, whether secular culture or the church to find people making moves that outpace their wisdom and their knowledge. And, and so we, we have a lot of zealous people who do a lot of things that end up doing a lot of damage because they haven't used wisdom in the application of those things. Just because it sounds true doesn't mean it is true. <laughs> Just because you could say, well, Paul was a, a rebel and a troublemaker, so he probably would take a Gentile into the temple. That may sound believable, but no one verified it. And so this whole thing happened. Uh, Proverbs 19, verse 2 says this, Desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. Romans 10, Paul talks about this in, in the zeal of those who are far from Christ. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. It's amazing how we can, we can honestly, genuinely be zealous for God and carry that out in a way that is not righteous at all. You can look through the history of the church and find genuinely zealous people who've done incredible damage and wrong and sin in the name of God because their zeal outpaced their wisdom and discernment. Paul writes in Galatians 1, of himself, going back to when he had great zeal to defend God against these people who were, who were following after Jesus. He says in Galatians 1, he says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, the flip side of zeal without knowledge or discernment is zeal with knowledge and discernment, which is interesting because Paul would not veer away from obeying what God had told him to do, where he told him to go, when he told him to go there. Paul was zealous to obey Jesus, and he did have knowledge and wisdom he had the information. He knew that Jesus is king of all kings. He is the savior of the world. He is worthy of his obedience. And he had all the knowledge he needed. And he applied that to his zeal. And Paul had incredible impact for the kingdom of God all over the, 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 the seen world at that time. The last thing... Uh, that I think is really important to catch is the persistence of God's sovereignty and his will. The persistence of God's sovereignty and his will. Paul, who was called to be the messenger to the Gentiles, is in chains. Which we would probably use conventional wisdom and say, if I'm in prison, then that's the end of my ministry. 
If I'm in chains, if I lose my freedom, I no longer can do the things that I can do, and so that changes everything. What's interesting is not only did Paul being in chains not change everything, but he had a arguably more fruitful, influential ministry after he was in chains than before. All the incredible things that happened, the churches that were planted under his ministry and his missionary journeys, after he was in chains, he actually brought the gospel to Caesar himself. And the gospel invaded the Roman Empire, not just backwater communities throughout the, king, the, the empire, but it invaded the very, the very palaces and temples of the Roman Empire while Paul was in chains. He was warned over again, over again about the loss of freedom that awaits him in Jerusalem. But as we'll see, whether free or in chains, the word of God, the mission of God cannot be stopped. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, he writes, whether, whether free or in chains, he talks about obeying and carrying out the word of the Lord. He wrote that letter to the church in Corinth while he was at Ephesus in about 53 or 54 AD. He wrote, whether I am in chains or free, and at that time he was free, it was about a year to two later in AD 55 in Jerusalem now, where we catch up with Paul when those words that he wrote to the believers in Corinth became a reality for him. He was no longer free, he was in chains. Paul was prophetic about his own situation and was called to live out what he claimed he believed. And so I think, again, the, the, the question comes back to this, am I willing to live out the testimony of Scripture no matter what the consequences are? Am I, am I willing to do that? Is, do? Do I obey, do I follow Jesus to the extent that I like what Jesus has to say some of the things resonate with me. Some of the things I'm not all about, but I follow Jesus as far as he agrees with me or do I follow Jesus and do I trust him even when I don't like what he says and I don't agree with what he says, but I follow him because he deserves to be followed and he is the only one worthy of my allegiance, my worship and my obedience. John uh, Chow wrote in a journal, and uh, that journal was, was kept by the fishermen. And uh, eventually that journal made, it, made its way back to his family. He had written a letter to his family. And I want to read what he says here. He says, you guys might think I'm crazy in all this but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or God if I get killed. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to, and I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. Don't retrieve my body. This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshiping in their own language, as Revelation 7, 9, and 10 says. I love you all, and I pray none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. And we hear that, and we hear that extraordinary journey of, that God took John on. But it is very unlikely that 
many of us are going to a, an island that's never been engaged by an outsider. So we think of this kind of obedience and we sometimes think, well, how can I relate to that? It's not about what we see as the grandeur of the obedience. It's the fact that we obey Jesus into what he calls us to do. Because Karen Kegley right now, if you know her, been a part of our church for, goes back a long ways. But Karen has lived a simple life of consistent obedience and loving others, going to small places gladly because she too will do anything for Jesus. And even today as she has lost her mobility, the color from her body, her ability to focus is still inspiring people around her to see Jesus as their only treasure. She didn't go to an island far away. She moved around California with Tom, raised kids, and consistently obeyed the next step that the Holy Spirit gave her. There's no difference in eternity between Karen and John because they've lived lives of obedience. The good news is that God will never ever give up on his word or his people. Whatever awaits you as you obey, God will lead and love you through the greatest of odds for the glory of his kingdom. Our responsibility is to obey, to lay our lives down, to surrender to him in humility, to trust that no matter what life holds for us, we don't chase martyrdom or death. We don't chase any, but you know what we also don't do? We don't chase comfort. We chase Jesus wherever he's taking us. And Jesus Again, that night that he was with his disciples before he was arrested, like Paul. We've been talking about how there can be nothing in our lives that's a greater treasure or greater love than Jesus. But why did Jesus do what he did? We do what we do, hopefully, because we love Jesus and he is our treasure. But why does Jesus do what he does? I think there's two reasons. Jesus does what he does, one, because he lives in complete obedience to his father. And secondly, we are his treasure. We are his inheritance. And so why would Jesus give his life? Why would Jesus lay down his power and authority? Because we are his treasure. <laughs> We are his inheritance. And he loves us that much. And so when he was with his disciples and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, remember that this, when you do this together, this is my body that was broken for you. This is a reminder that you are worth it. 
that you are mine, that I love you and I pursued you. Remember that. And, and as you remember that, go and live in obedience to what I've called you to do. Let's take that bread together. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this reminds you of my blood that was shed, my blood that covers all of your sins. The thoughts that you've had, the actions you've taken, the actions you've not taken, the thoughts you haven't thought. It covers all of it and brings you into a saving relationship with the Father. So let's take that and take it together. Jesus, I, um, I thank you for your pursuit and your presence and your persistence. I thank you that you meet us at that place of obeying you because you are everything and you are worth it. But God, you also, Jesus, you also meet us at that place of obeying you because we like what you've said. And you, move, you are willing to patiently move us on from there. As long as it takes for us to recognize that you are everything. So I pray this morning that we would consider what that obedience is that you're calling us to. God, whether right now, if the Holy Spirit is placing on someone's heart in here that, that they need to uproot and go somewhere far away, that they would obey. And I pray for those of us who, if that obedience that the Holy Spirit is calling them to is to be right here, loving others, caring for others, God, that they would have the courage to obey that as well. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for all of it. Even the things that I don't like and I don't understand. I thank you for who you are and that I can trust you and that you are worth everything from me. In Jesus' name. so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.